0: We're excited about a brand new project, and it's called The Church and the Racial Divide. So Trillia, maybe share a little bit of why why we're excited about it.
1: Yeah, well, we're excited about it because... This is about the church, and it is about the unity of the church. is about what God says in His Word. It's actually a study. So churches can get together with small groups of people and study God's Word together about this topic. So what other way to not only equip and disciple, but encourage each other to learn more about what God says about racial reconciliation, harmony, unity, and this beautiful picture that we're going to see one day, every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's Bible teaching, right? I mean, each session takes a passage of Scripture and is taught how it applies to race. You know, the Bible talks quite a bit about race. And what I think is helpful is that this this is okay. People in their local churches opening the Scriptures saying, what does the Bible say about this?
1: is about God's Word and how we can live and grow together as a people a made in His image who have been united through Christ— and who will be living and worshiping together forever.
0: If your church is interested in this, uh, you can go to lifeway.com/slash the church and the racial divide. You can download it as a video download. You can purchase the kit that has DVDs. There's all kinds of resources for you and your church. So we want to encourage you to get that.
1: Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, DC. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our DC office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. Joining me for this week's episode is my colleague Chelsea Patterson. So, Chelsea, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: It always kind of feels funny that we do this uh, little, little
2: here every week. This little
1: uh, <laughs> this little uh, song and dance yep. right at the beginning, but uh, I've been told in the podcasting world that you need to have an introduction so that people, you know, if know they're listening voices. for the first time. Yeah. Uh, they they know your voice, or if they're like me and they listen to a ton of podcasts, they can be reminded what your voice sounds well, like. This is my voice, and that is and that is your voice. All right, so uh, Chelsea, this week we are we're doing a podcast that is that is really relevant for the day that it's publishing. We're recording here on Monday afternoon, February twenty fourth. Uh, we plan to publish this on Tuesday, February twenty fifth. And the reason that we're doing this is because the United States Senate uh, has scheduled two really important mm-hmm. votes on the floor on two really important pro-life bills. The first bill is called the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. The second bill is titled the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Uh, there are some in in the media when covering these bills that will refer to them as two anti-abortion bills, which I just have to say that's not only factually incorrect, it's also just rhetorically really annoying. Yeah, uh, sure, the first bill does deal directly with abortion in the sense that it would it would outlaw late-term abortions, but the but the second bill. Deals with abortion uh just in the sense of children who happen to survive abortion attempts and are born alive. These are babies that are are literally, so if it's happening in a hospital, they're they literally come out in a hospital born alive, breathing, crying like any other young child. They are born alive. That is no longer abortion.
2: No. Uh, it's no.
1: it's it's really infanticide to leave a child on the table uh, that has been born alive. But this bill is necessary because federal law does not adequately protect those children. Uh, so that's uh, th- thanks for coming to my TED talk about uh, why I'm frustrated <laughs> with how the media is covering these bills. No, you're right, um, but but in 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 reality, they are two pro-life bills uh, because they are bills that deal with the most vulnerable among us. That uh, that being unborn and and newborn, truly newly born uh, children. So Chelsea, before we get into the particulars. Of these bills, uh, you talked a little bit about it last week during our legislative agenda episode. Uh, but talk to us about what, how these bills came to be scheduled here in in February. What's going on there? Uh, why did Mitch McConnell put these put these bills on the Senate calendar for now?
2: Absolutely. So normally around the March for Life, which is late January, uh, the March for Life, every year since uh, Roe v. Wade became the law of the land, um, people have gathered on our National Mall in Washington, D.C. to um, march up to the Supreme Court um, for the cause of life and for the unborn and our our most vulnerable people. So normally around the March for Life, there are uh, pro-life votes in Congress. The House of Representatives is democratically controlled, which... Um, there are only two uh, pro-life Democrats in the House right now, so there is not a vote there. And then the Senate was um, tied up with impeachment, so they were not doing any votes on anything. So Mitch McConnell said, you know what, we didn't get to vote during the March for Life, so we're going to bring um, the vote now. Um, so he not only brought one, but two two bills, which we'll dive into. So this is um, a delayed reaction to what he normally would have done around the during March for Life. Exactly. Okay, okay. Exactly. so
1: that's helpful, and that that's helpful to frame up, you know, the schedule of of what's happening here for those outside of D.C. For those of us in pro-life community uh, here in D.C. that are advocating for these bills, it wasn't too much of a surprise because, as you said, we anticipated, expected a vote around the March for Life. So this is just a delay of that. But, um, but
2: that doesn't uh, dampen our gratitude at all for Mitch McConnell. Yeah, totally. And, and what yeah, I was going to yes. say is
1: I, I enjoyed seeing the news coverage of McConnell. Uh, McConnell is bringing these pro-life bills to the floor using this special Senate rule, mm-hmm. Rule 14. Yes. Um, Which
2: bypasses. Um, committees. Yeah. So t- yes.
1: tell us about, tell us a little bit more about that rule 14. What does that mean that he is bringing this directly to the floor?
2: Yeah. So he manages all the floor time debate, everything. Um, he's majority leader. So it is his um, chamber. So rule 14 basically says that a bill does not need to go through the normal legislative process. Um, the born alive bill did just receive a full uh, judiciary hearing. Um, but normally for a bill to go to a floor vote, it would either need to be hotlined, which um, basically means a member can can put it on the hotline and it can go straight to the floor, or um, unanimous consent, which means it's very bipartisan, no one would disagree, or Rule 14, which says that it can bypass the committee process.
1: It's neat to me when uh, when a parliamentary procedure happens that's outside of the norm mm-hmm. on a bill that you really care about, like we care about the pain-capable bill uh, and the born-alive bill as well. But but the pain-capable bill uh, in particular was the one that Mitch McConnell used, the Rule 14, uh, to bring it to the floor right away. Um, and it's neat because that sort of parliamentary procedure rule uh, outside the norm, <laughs> the word in my head is trick it was obviously not a trick it's just another way of uh, of conducting business one in the of Senate. the perks
2: of one of the perks being of being the, majority, the leader. majority leader that's a good yes. way to say
1: it the thing that i liked about that is it brought a bill that's really important that we care a lot about that doesn't get enough media attention uh, and it kind of popped it above uh you know the the usual uh, the usual under coverage that these bills get. So, so Chelsea, you've got an article uh, out uh, recently on on erlc.com uh, that talks about uh, really the, the issues beneath the bill, like, like the pain-capable bill. And the title of your article is, Study Shows Preborn Babies Feel Pain As Early As 12 Weeks Gestation. Tell us about that piece.
2: So for um, a while, scientists have um, generally agreed that the gestational age that an unborn baby can feel pain is 20, 22 weeks. And so written in the language of the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act is 20 weeks. And, you know, you've heard um, the 20-week ban, things like that thrown around um, as slang for the pain-capable bill. But there was a recent study that was published just last month in January of 2020 with two researchers. And one of the things that is so interesting about this study is um, two researchers with different worldviews, and they came to different moral conclusions on um, the implications of their study. One was a uh, pro-choice uh, researcher and the other one was a pro-life doctor. Um oh, so that's really interesting. So interesting. And I was really encouraged that they could come together on this research, even though the the moral implications they came to were different, to write this study. And what this study um dives into is when an unborn baby can feel pain. And like I said, for for a while, scientists have said 20 weeks. Um, but what these researchers make the case for is even earlier. And they they say approximately 12 weeks uh, gestational age that an unborn baby can feel pain. And something else that really um, stood out to me and broke my heart, this piece actually took me um, longer than normal to write because I think I just kept sitting there um, just heartbroken over over these statistics, but abortion is the only fetal procedure where a doctor does not use anesthesia. Any other surgery in utero, a doctor will default to using anesthesia because the science says that unborn baby can feel pain. Right,
1: right. And, it, it, th- those who are participating in, in abortion, there is the sense that we know what we're doing. Yes, yes. Uh, there, there's Every sense. Every other doctor knows right, what they're doing. Right, right. Which is, which just, it, it's you know, you write here that, that that's a that's really chilling. And and their quote is to our knowledge, all clinicians or surgeons working with fetal patients advocate the use of fetal anesthesia and uh as, as standard practice. Absolutely. Um, which like let's just if if an unborn child can be a medical patient undergoing a surgery, and I think many people, uh, certainly the kinds of people who would be listening to a podcast like Capital Conversations have probably seen these videos uh, online showing just incredible advances. Uh, a photo with the and, hand reaching
2: out. Right, and, and just
1: incredible advances of uh, healthcare inside the womb. Um, and so it's just horrific to imagine that there's this whole sector of our society mm-hmm. that understands that we, that we can treat unborn, unborn children in the womb as patients,
2: it, and we give them case, anesthesia. Yes, except and for
1: and then and then we can also allow people to abort those same unborn children, uh, it, sometimes for medical reasons or you know given stated medical reasons that otherwise uh, could be operable, and it's it's. I'm glad you wrote this, but it is horrific. It's Um,
2: so heartbreaking. And, you know, one of the things um, that I also talk about in this article that is extremely worth noting, especially in discussion with the pain-capable bill, um, first of all, the United States is one of only seven nations that allows for late-term abortion. In that seven um, number is North Korea and China, which – um, yeah, that's not the crew you want to be associated not, with when no. it comes to how we
1: treat the vulnerable.
2: Absolutely not. The other thing I talk about um, in this piece is that the majority of Americans are actually for limits on abortion. Even people that label themselves as pro-choice are for limits on abortion, and I, that's not talked about. You know, we've put ourselves into these two binary camps of pro-choice, pro-life, and when when someone calls themselves pro-choice. Um, That does not account for people that do support limits, and the abortion lobby certainly does not highlight those desires for limits. And we've seen in every single Democrat running for president, um, they have just wholeheartedly embraced the abortion lobby Advocating for the removal of of the Hyde Amendment, and then and then Pete Buttigieg was interviewed about um, Governor Northam's comments, and and he could not de- definitively say. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre and, and heartbreaking. And so, it's just
1: stupid. Um, it's it really is that. Um, so this most recent mayor's poll that you that you referenced, seventy percent of Americans would limit abortion uh, to the first three months of pregnancy, or uh, to an even tighter uh, requirement. Seventy percent of Americans in, huge. in 2020 uh, is is like there are, there are very few things, potential policies or, or, or pieces of legislation that, that receive seventy percent support. So it's just it's just wild to me that the abortion lobby has such a stranglehold uh, on on the Democratic Party and so many politicians, elected officials here in D.C. that they can't recognize that the majority of Americans are on the side of a bill like the Pain Capable Unborn Children Protection Act. So, Chelsea, let's let's talk about this, this bill in particular. What would it do?
2: So this bill, the pain-capable bill, would say that after an unborn child um, is capable of feeling pain, and again, they use the 20 weeks um, in this language. Um, I hope one day that we can all rally around that it's even earlier, but they use the, the 20 weeks in this bill. Um, it would just say that after that, baby is capable of feeling pain. Uh, you can't perform an abortion. Again, common sense. Most Americans agree with this. Um, and it, it's it's being brought to the Senate floor uh, so that we can see where our senators are going to vote on this. Um, this bill has been uh, brought to the Senate before for a vote. In 2018, there were 51 yays, 46 nays, and three uh, members not voting. Um, you know, we hope that The yays will be increased. Uh, Again, unfortunately, this issue is partisan across party lines, even though the majority of Americans support those those limits on abortion.
1: Right. Um, The story here on the bipartisan nature of that vote is both positive and negative. It's negative because, uh, you know, the the Republican Party, which is vastly uh, pro-life, did have two senators, both... uh, uh, Markowski of Alaska and and Collins of Maine voting no, uh, but the Democratic Party had uh, two senators uh, voting voting yes, uh, Casey of Pennsylvania and Mansion of West Virginia. So there is some bipartisan crossover there. Unfortunately, it's in both ways that yes. kind of negates and 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 again puts it at a little bit of a a uh, little bit of a tie. Um, but people listening will say, well, fifty one. There's 100 senators. That's a majority. Why didn't it pass?
2: So for a bill to actually pass the Senate, it needs to reach what is called cloture, which is 60 votes, not a simple majority. So unfortunately, any bill that does not receive cloture does not move out of that chamber. So um, I, I we're, we're very grateful that these members are continued to be forced to be put on record and, and show where they're voting. Uh, but if it does not reach that 60 vote threshold, then it doesn't unfortunately move
1: forward. Yeah. So a few more things here on the pain capable bill before we move on to Born Alive. Uh, this is a bill that we, we really make the point in our talking points here and around D.C. in our advocacy work that this is a tested legislative vehicle uh, meaning that there is similar legislation at the state level uh, that has already passed Multiple at least states. twenty states.
2: Yes,
1: um, so you have almost half the states uh, in the union have already passed uh, this bill into law. Obviously, then it is uh, it is litigated in the courts. But um, th- this is this is a piece of legislation that the pro life community, both here in D.C. and at the state level. Uh, has had uh, momentum behind for a really long time and so like you said um, we are we are looking forward to it receiving another vote hopefully that uh, that yay number is going to continually uh, increase each time this is one of those bills that that has the support uh, at the state level um, the co-sponsors they're they're really I mean pretty much everybody almost from the Republican Conference including all of the leadership Republican leadership in both chambers. Uh, And in the House, there's one independent member uh, and two Democrats who have co-sponsored the House version of this bill. Uh, This bill also has the support uh, from President Trump, with uh, his commitment, uh, campaign commitment in 2016, as well as uh, he mentioned this particular bill, calling for a vote on it in his most recent uh, State of the Union address uh, earlier uh, in 2020. And at the Um,
2: State of the Union, they had a little girl who had been born at 20 weeks and uh, is now thriving. She's two, three years old, but yeah, yeah, yeah. her little elf. Was
1: there, yeah, and uh, as a, as a new dad, those kinds of stories are are extra emotional. So uh, we will be watching that. Following the pain-capable vote, McConnell has set up for one more vote, uh, and this one uh, again, it's not an abortion bill per se; it's a pro-life bill, uh, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. I like that these bills are stacked. Uh, I think it's really interesting that they're going to be voted on back to back because it's going to uh, it's going put members in a spot where you say, okay, you don't want to be with us at uh, 20 weeks protecting an unborn child.
2: Where do you draw the line?
1: Right. Where do you draw the line? Is being born enough uh, or uh, are senators going to take the uh, line from the abortion lobby in Planned Parenthood, which basically says an undesired life is no life at all. Let's just forget that that life ever existed, even if that life is born uh, and, and a medical professional would have to turn their back on the Hippocratic Oath and the reason that they got into the medical profession to begin with and leave that child uh, neglected. So I think it's good that they will be stacked. I think uh, I think you will probably See some uh, see some crossover votes here. I know um, there has been in the past with uh, senators like Doug Jones in Alabama not voting for the paint capable bill, uh, but then voting yes for the born alive bill, uh, which was personally exciting for us back in twenty nineteen. Because we had some targeted advocacy, uh, Chelsea, you uh, co-authored an opinion piece uh, with our friend Dana Hall-McCain yeah. in Alabama, calling specifically on uh, both of Alabama senators, uh, Senator Shelby and Senator Jones, a Republican and a Democrat, to vote for this bill. They both did. Um, you know that that was a that was a moment of of, of personal victory and, and, and reflection. Uh, so we're we're looking for that bipartisan vote total to increase. If you've been following along Capital Conversations, uh, you have heard us talk about this bill many times before. And I just want to plug again our interview with uh, an abortion survivor uh, named Melissa Oden. Uh, Melissa's story uh, is uh, – it's it's just – it's both heartbreaking and heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she is just – she's an incredible person. She's a hilarious person. Uh, she was a really fun interview uh, for Chelsea and I.
2: Jeff, I think of the year and some change I've been doing this podcast with you, Yeah, um, that still stands out as probably my favorite interview. Yeah. And do
1: you remember when we were coming in that day? It was a snow day. Yeah, it was a snow day. Yeah. So the office was closed. Yeah. But I we did not want to reschedule no. it because we were like, this is going to be a great important. interview. Yeah. Right. We were calling her. So she was she was in Kansas City. But we marched to the Leland House in the snow. And uh, yeah, we had that interview. It was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, I'm going to link to that in the show notes. I would highly highly encourage encourage people uh, to go listen to it because again, th- this is one of those issues that the abortion lobby, planned parenthood, they they don't have a good argument because it's not actually abortion no. to kill a baby that has been born alive. Uh to kill a baby through neglect. That's not abortion because the baby is born alive. It's is it is something else and it is horrific. Um, And so the only argument that they have is just to act like it doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. This is a solution in search of a problem. Move right along. And in fact, that's exactly what they did last year uh, when Democrats blocked uh, this vote. So the last vote, interestingly enough, is exactly a year ago to the day. Mm -hmm. It was February 25th, 2019. Wow. Uh, There were 53 yays, 44 nays, and and three people not. Voting. But that's what they did. That was their argument. And the reason that uh, Melissa's story is really just so powerful and so perfect for this moment is because she is a living testament that this is a problem. And had it not been for one nurse picking her up and taking her to the NICU to save so her outrageous. life, Melissa wouldn't be here with us. Um, so this does happen, uh, unfortunately. And it is an important bill. Uh, so, Chelsea, give us a refresher on what exactly uh, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act would do.
2: Absolutely. So current federal law uh, does not currently protect um, survivors from a failed abortion. And so what this bill would do um, is it would amend uh, the criminal code to require any health professional who's present when a child is born alive following an abortion Um, or an attempted abortion to exercise the same degree of care as they would for any other uh, child who is born. And secondly, um, this uh, would ensure that the child is immediately admitted to a hospital. Uh, Most places where abortions are performed are not hospitals. Um, You know, We'll talk about, I'm sure, on this podcast, the June medical case um, in depth. um, And and that case deals quite a bit with the admitting privileges at hospitals. Um, And this bill would require that that baby um, is immediately admitted to the hospital. You know, as Christians and as believers, we. are not swayed on the fact. Um, and we firmly believe that life begins at conception. Um, so the, that's why we work on abortion um, at every level, but especially, you know, it ought to shock the consciences of everyone that Americans in 2020 do not have adequate protections for a baby born alive from an abortion. Um, you know, infanticide is um, ought to shock our consciences, you know, I still have the comments of Governor Northam um, in my head, as as many of of our listeners probably do, talking about um, how he would approach a child born alive from a failed abortion, and he uh, made some chilling statements.
1: Yeah, that's right. He talked about, uh, so he was on a radio show uh, in Northern Virginia and he talked about if a baby, you know, if this were to happen and, you know, again, it was all being talked about as if it was theoretical and it didn't really happen. But, you know, he said, oh, if this happens, you know, the baby, I could tell exactly what would happen. Uh, The baby would be kept alive. The baby would kept comfortable, and then a conversation would ensue. Uh, As if there should be any other conversation than what do we need to do immediately to protect and save this vulnerable life.
2: So that bill is coming before the Senate. One thing um, of interest to note, last time Senator Kane from Virginia voted against the bill, and the reason he gave when asked was that the bill had not had a uh, committee hearing. Well, that bill- hadas had a full Judiciary Committee hearing, which you can't get much bigger than a Senate judiciary hearing. it's it that is a very big deal. Yeah. and so that it'll be very interesting to see how he votes this time um if he's going to vote no and just give a different talking point or if his conscience has been swayed, um then he'll vote yes on this important bill. In conjunction with this vote, uh, the House for months has been um, slowly working on a discharge petition, which is a tool the minority has in their hands that once uh, they get 218 signatures on that petition, then the um, House would be forced to vote on that particular piece of legislation. So they're continuing to add members To that petition on the Born Alive bill, Um, they haven't reached 218 yet. Um, But I think it's great that the House is working on this as well with the tools that they have available um, at their disposal.
1: So we'll be watching in the Senate, and I anticipate this vote total on this bill uh, to tick up. So again, it already uh, 53 um, so that's seven votes away from the 60 that it would need uh, to pass. Again, we mentioned that uh, a couple of Democrats did sign on to this, Jones, Casey, and Manchin, already, literally a year ago. So I would I would anticipate them to vote yes again. Um, our coalition space that, that we uh, advocate in uh, is also really focusing on uh, – Senator Kane, uh, which for the reasons that you just mentioned, hey, we just had a, uh, if this was your problem with it, we just had a hearing on it. Problem uh, solved. Yeah, problem solved. Let's vote yes. Um, and then there, there are a couple other uh, Democratic senators who I would say are, the pro-left community is considering them as, as possible uh, yes votes uh, on this bill. So uh, that in addition to the three senators who were absent last time, so while the date was the same, February 25th, uh, last year's February twenty fifth and twenty eighteen was actually a Monday night, which uh senators go home every uh every weekend back to their home states. Uh and then Monday votes are are colloquially around here referred to as uh, fly in votes or uh, sometimes even bed check votes. So it sort of gives <laughs> it gives uh the party leadership uh a number to say, okay, how many people are here, uh, you know, as if it was a summer camp and all the senators are coming back roll to call. their bunk beds. Yeah, roll call votes uh for bed votes. So we don't really like to see uh, votes that are this important on our issues happen on Monday. So we are we're really glad uh, that McConnell scheduled the vote for Tuesday uh, because they should all be here. So uh, of those three senators, uh, one was Lisa Murkowski, who again is one of these Republicans who who is is basically pro-choice. Is is not a consistent pro-life. Uh, she her her vote is not one that is consistently pro-life, and so. She was traveling uh, back from Alaska the last time this was up for vote. She doesn't have that excuse this time. And so the question will be called and she'll need to answer it. Um, and then the other two were Republicans who normally are uh, strong, uh, strong pro-life uh, voters. So at the, at the very least, this should get up to hopefully 56. Um, and there is some possibility there. Uh, it is not out of the question that the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act gets to the 60 vote threshold uh, on, on Tuesday. So, Chelsea, you you mentioned and we've talked a lot about uh, the Senate Judiciary hearing on the Born Alive uh, bill uh, that it received this year. Uh, and, and I'm going to link in the show notes to one just really moving part of that hearing when uh, registered nurse Jill Stanick, who now works for the pro-life organization Susan B. Anthony List, gave her testimony before the committee about what it is like to be a nurse in the room when a child survives an abortion. Um, so again, these are, these are weighty and tragic issues that we are dealing with around the life issue. So I I just want to give that warning before you click on the video, but I would encourage uh, those who want to learn more about, about what this experience is like for, for a nurse to go watch, uh, Ms. Stanek's testimony, because what she talks about is how the hospital that she worked at in Illinois would just take babies to breathe their last breaths in a utility closet. I mean that that is just so painful to imagine, and because it is just common experience to be a tragedy, even for the most pro-abortion uh, proponent, the hospital ended up turning an old closet into what they called a comfort room. Uh, which uh, Stanek's line that is so powerful from her testimony was that it, while the hospital was trying to convince themselves that they were comforting these infants as they let them die. What they were really doing was comforting themselves. And she was just flabbergasted at how far uh, these they doctors would go. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it it's, it's unreal. Horrific, it's unreal yeah. to think that that we could jump through all these hoops in order to uh, just soothe the conscience. So uh, we are working and praying toward, uh, toward this bill's successful vote in the Senate, uh, so that the kinds of things that Jill Stanek witnessed as a nurse just would not happen anymore. Uh, and, you know, Chelsea, you mentioned uh, the June Medical Service Supreme Court case. There's a, there's a good uh, sort of thread to be tied here with uh, the Born Alive bill and the questions being asked in that case, which is, why does this procedure get a carve-out from standard medical practices of care uh, than any other procedure does. And that's something that that case uh, really dives into and we'll be discussing more on this podcast as that is up uh, for oral arguments coming soon. Um, but the same question should be asked here when a child survives and is born alive, why is it uh, that that child is treated differently just because they were born alive after an abortion? That's the question that the Senate is going, uh, to have to be faced with tomorrow after the pain-capable vote. So to keep up with us, be following us at ERLC on Twitter. Uh, follow us, ERLC, SBC on Instagram and ERLC on Facebook, where we will be posting resources tonight and tomorrow and tomorrow night leading up to and after after the vote, as well as you can check out the resources here in the show notes to this podcast. And, uh, and one final place that I want to direct your attention, if you are interested in uh, in this type of uh, very specific, uh, I would even say the sort of wonky aspects of the ERLC's policy work in DC, I'd encourage you to sign up for our policy newsletter. Uh, So this public policy newsletter goes out every week that Congress is in session, uh, and you can sign up for it at erlc.com slash policy. Uh, Just enter your name and email there, and you will begin receiving this public policy newsletter. This is something that we really target for our D.C. audience. So we want people throughout the administration, on Capitol Hill, in the judiciary, if they want to know what we value, what we're working on, uh, as, the, as the legislative arm of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, they're receiving this newsletter. But if it's something you would enjoy uh, receiving as well, I'd encourage you to, uh, to sign up. So once again, you can go to erlc.com slash policy, uh, and it is right up there at the top right corner of that website to sign up for that policy newsletter. And as always, if you enjoyed listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you are listening, whether that's iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or wherever else. Uh, And would you consider dropping us a rating and a review? This really will help others find our show. Our hope for this podcast is that the conversations around the table on, on these important pro-life bills and others would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public debates. So if you know someone in your church or your campus community, uh, send them a link. Uh, you can find all of our episodes of Capital Conversations at erlc.com, uh, and that's sometimes an easy link to uh, to send people to. So uh, Chelsea, thank you so much uh, for for your work uh, as, as a um As an advocate on Capitol Hill on these important bills and for sharing more about them with us today on Capitol Conversations. Thanks, Jeff. This is Capitol Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team and thanks also to you for joining us today. Resources from this conversation are available at ERLC.com to equip you and your church.